Gail is passing out a very broad outline, and it looks like a lot, but there's just, it's, yeah, it's a lot. No, <laughs> no, it's not as much as it looks like, but I, I, I realized I, I actually sent Ada a text, and I, she helped me understand that you guys have not read chapters one and two, probably, of uh, Matthew, and so I wanted to give you an outline so you can kind of follow along. And if you want to have your Bibles open to chapter one, that's where we're going to spend most of our time this morning. So, um, one of my prayers for us and that we've been praying is that as we study the Sermon on the Mount this year, that we will not just simply study God's Word, but that we will, by God's grace, be changed by God's Word. And that's kind of what the Sermon on the Mount is calling us to do. And so... um, one, uh, so one of the things we, we are going to emphasize this year is the importance of prayer. Because we, um, we are going to be asking God to grow us in who we are in Christ. And because of that, we absolutely need the Holy Spirit. And so we just want to emphasize prayer. We're going to be having our monthly prayer times um, once a month, we'll be meeting after Bible study for anyone who can stay, and it's for everyone to get, gather together. Then we'll have an emphasis on prayer in our small groups, and then uh, in our own time that we're working on our, our Bible study, we're going to be praying for those things, that God would really come and begin changing us in our hearts and minds and the way we love one another. So that's going to be part of what we're doing. This morning, this this year, um, my job this morning is to begin preparing us for the study on the Sermon on the Mount. And yet, as Ada said, the, that we're not even going to begin with the Sermon on the Mount this morning. So we're going to begin for, with the first two chapters of Matthew's Gospel, and then Christina will do chapters three and four. So let me tell you why we are doing it that way. There are two answers. The first one's really easy. And that is, we're, we're beginning with chapters 1 and 2 and 3 and then 3 and 4 because that's how Matthew begins his gospel. And it is only through those first four chapters that we come to this magnificent teaching of Jesus, which has come to be called the Sermon on the Mount. And I've, I've spent some time doing this and studying these four chapters and looking at them. I truly cannot imagine studying the Sermon on the Mount without having gone through these four chapters. I think they're that foundational, that critical. And so um, that's what we're going, we're going to... We'll talk about the first two today. And one of the reasons that is, that, that is so important is because it is here in these four chapters that Matthew is going to prepare our hearts to meet the one who teaches the Sermon on the Mount. So that's what we're going to be doing today. Now, the second reason we are doing this is because of the sermon itself. Um, Because the very nature of the content of the sermon is an understanding of who Jesus is. And so that's what we want to do. John, John Stott writes this. He says, the sermon speaks of a Christian counterculture. And he writes that there is no single paragraph on the Sermon on the Mount in which this contrast between 
Christian and non-Christian standards are not drawn. And then he goes on to ask this essential question. He says, how is the church doing? And he says, how are you doing? Because he wants us to begin thinking about, is the Christian church today living as a Christian counterculture? Are we? Do we look any different from the world? Is there anything here in our church, or if you're from another church, is there anything in the churches of Jesus Christ that would cause someone to want to know of the hope that is within you? Is there anything that would cause them to take notice that there's something different here? And we are meant not only to have people want to know about us, but we are meant to continually be asking that question of the community of our church, and we are meant to ask that question in our own hearts. That the sermon is kind of kind of the manifesto for living faithfully in this fallen world and yet being set apart by Jesus Christ. So, the most often used understanding of the material we call the Sermon on the Mount is that it is an exposition of what life in God's kingdom is meant to be. And indeed, in the sermon, Christians are being called to a way of seeing and living and thinking and loving that is very different. We are called to be different. And we are called to be kind of upside down and inside out from the way the world is. And scripture tells us that we, um, we, we can be that way because... In Colossians 1.13, it says, He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness, and he has transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. That's who we are now. And what, what Colossians is saying is, we already are there. Now, we aren't living perfectly, but we are there. We have been transferred to that. When we became a Christian, we were transferred into that kingdom. And we are being called to a different kind of standard than the world. And in this life, the Sermon on the Mount is going to, to call us to this higher standard, but, but here's what I want to tell you. We're never going to fully live up to it in this life. We are not. And I don't want you, as we begin studying this, to become overwhelmed by that. What I want you to know is that Jesus wants to help you become more like the Sermon on the Mount. And so that's what we are going to be studying. And I don't want you to be dissuaded because there is a beauty and a fullness to this that is going to happen in the final kingdom. And we are being prepared for that now. We are meant to taste of that now. It is meant to awaken a desire in us even now that we would move deeper and deeper into learning what the kingdom, the final kingdom, is going to be like. And Jesus wants us to have a taste of that now. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes this. He says, Matthew puts the true teaching concerning the kingdom in the very forefront of his gospel for the great purpose of this sermon is to give an exposition of the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is not something only for the future. It is for here and now. It is for people who follow their king. And so, before we study what life in the kingdom looks like, we need to meet our king. And that's what we're going to do this morning. And the two questions we're going to be asking this morning is, 
Who is our king? And the second question is, will we follow him? Okay, um, a couple of comments by way of introduction, just a big picture thing about the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew, indeed, um, is almost widely accepted as the author of the Gospel, and he was also known as Levi, and before he met Jesus, he was a tax collector, which, of course, because Matthew was Jewish, made him especially despised among his people because he was taking their money and giving it to Rome. And so this, that was what he did, and he met Jesus. And we see this complete change in Matthew as, as you go through. You, you think of him as who he was, and then you see who he is as writing this gospel. The gospel was probably written in the late 50s to 60 A.D., somewhere in that. And the primary audience for this gospel would have been the Jewish people. And you are going to find, as you go through some of the things that we're going to talk about today and next week, and is that one of the things you're going to find out is there are so many Old Testament references. And there are so many things in here that it is important to know what happened in the Old Testament and what is going on and the promises of God that were made. And so to understand that this was written to a Jewish audience, at that time the Gentiles would not have been able to understand Matthew's gospel very easily because in order to understand his gospel, you have to understand the promises and the hopes of the Old Testament. And so that's where we're going to go. Okay, so um, if we're going to spend most of our time this morning um, in kind of uh, the, the first verse of chapter 1. We'll be spending time there. But um, if you want to turn there, I, I'm going to read it to you. But verse 1 is kind of a hand-over-your-mouth kind of verse. It's theologically immense. It's rather short in the number of words that are contained, but it's amazingly vast in its content. And it is foundational for all that follows, not only in chapter 1, but actually this verse keeps you tethered to all of Matthew. And here's what it says. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now perhaps... At first glance, it does not seem so dramatic, but it is. there's so much more here than it seems. So we're going to look at this, this verse piece by piece, and then we'll go really quickly over the other things we're going to talk about. Okay, so the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. The first thing I want to tell you is that genealogies were very important in the Hebrew culture. And they were kept, the, the, the genealogy of each family was kept meticulously. And one of the reasons for that is, for example, why was, why was the genealogy so important? Well, if you remember, when the people, when the Hebrew people came out of the wilderness wanderings and entered into the promised land, the land that they, that they received was determined by their genealogy. So if you were, there, uh, there were 12 tribes in Israel, and if you were in, in the tribe of Benjamin, you got this piece of land. If you were in the tribe of Simeon, you got this piece of land. And it was all determined by genealogy. So wherever you were, 
that was where you lived. That was the place where you lived. And then, in other, in other cases, genealogy was important about your position in, in this kingdom of Israel. Okay, so if, if you were, wanted to be a priest, you had to come from the tribe of Levi. You could not be a priest unless you had come from the tribe of Levi. And if you were, and the high priest from the, if you wanted to be a high priest, you had to come from the tribe of Levi, but also from the line of Aaron. So genealogy meant a lot in just those kinds of things. But here's the important thing. Kings were to come from the tribe of Judah. Only you, if you wanted to, if you were going to be a king, it had, you had to be from the tribe of Judah. Judah. And Matthew is going to begin with a particular genealogy. And you will see the importance of this as we go through Jesus' genealogy. Because he had to be, Jesus had to be, if he was going to be our king, he had to be from the tribe of Judah. Okay, so then we go on and we say, well, whose genealogy is this? Well, it's the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Here's another thing we need to learn. Often in the Hebrew culture, when names were given, especially to males, they were given so that they would be weighty, so that the name had almost a guiding light for their lives. It was something that would shape where they were going. It was, it was something that the baby, that they hoped that this young baby would grow up to be. And we find that sometimes in scripture, the name that one was to be called would be given to them by God. They were meant to be names of a particular hope and purpose when God gave it to them. And God is the one who names Jesus. Joseph is told, later on in our passage this morning, he is told by an angel sent from God, and this is what the angel said, you shall name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That's what the name Jesus means. That was what it means. The name Jesus means Yahweh saves. But that's not all. Because the title given to Jesus is, he is given a name, but he's given a title. And the title given is Christ, which means the anointed one. It was a title reserved for the Messiah that was coming, the promised one. It was a royal title. It meant one specially set apart and anointed by God for a specific purpose. So the very title was full for the, for the um, people who would be hearing the Gospel of Matthew or reading the Gospel of Matthew. This, this title of the Messiah was full of expectations. They had been waiting forever. This promise began back in the very beginning. They had been waiting forever and ever for this one called the Messiah. And so when, when they heard Matthew's um, when, when they were uh, um, hearing Matthew saying this in his gospel, that this would have stirred their hearts. This would have caused them to stand up and take notice that Jesus, Yahweh saves, is the Messiah. And so that is what his name and his title show us, that he was not just an ordinary baby. Okay, so then what happens in that passage? Well, then it becomes even weightier because they are not just thinking, well, maybe he's the Messiah. They are going to come to understand more because the next two names are are so important in the history of the Jewish um, 
people because it is a summary. The summary of the name of the genealogy of Jesus Christ is that he was the son of David. He was the son of Abraham. So, Jesus is the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, there's a lot we could say about these things um, that we know about their history through things that we've studied. But mainly what the focus was to the people of Israel when they heard this, it would have been the promises that were given to each of these people, to the promise given to David and the promise given to Abraham. Okay, so... Here's what would happen. Jesus is being placed in the lineage of David as the son of David. So this raises a hope. The hope is this, that the one of whom God spoke when he made the covenant promise to David, that this would be who this is. That this covenant promise that was made to David, and I'll read it to you in a minute, is a big, big promise. It's big. It's a big promise. And and it is the deepest meaning would only come through Jesus Christ. It, there is one coming. This was a promise made to David, but it wasn't about David. It was about his offspring. So here's what the promise was. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom, and he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. This was David. This promise was given to David back in the very beginning of the kings. And now it's being applied. Jesus is being called the son of David. And so what the people are waiting for is to say, is this the one that is promised? It's an amazing promise. And the people had been looking for a long, long time. And the question that is hanging there in the air is, is this the one we have been longing for? Is this the one God promised so long ago? And I want you to remember where we are in time. If you look at at the genealogy through here, you will find that after the deportation to Babylon and the return, the house of David has almost ceased to exist. If you look at the names listed in that who are the uh, listed as leaders in in uh, when they return to Jerusalem after the captivity, these are names of obscurity for the most part. And then comes this one, the son of David, this one who is promised. Matthew wants his Jewish readers to understand this is the one. This is the one who is the fulfillment of that promise. Because even after the exile, all hope seemed lost. They were losing their hope. They had been looking for this Messiah. They had been looking for this promise to be fulfilled that God had given to David. And it hadn't come. And it said to us, last year we studied in Isaiah. There was this passage and it said that there is that there will be a shoot that comes from the stump of Jesse. And a branch from his root shall bear fruit. The stump meant the stump meant that it would look like that the tree was dead, but then there would come this shoot out of it, and it would begin growing, and there would be this this great branch that would grow out of it, and that's what this is talking about. And it says that that this one who would come and fulfill that that promise, that this one that he is the answer, and the stump. That we would see that the stump was not dead, 
That was when they would see the promised Messiah. That is what is happening with Jesus. The stump that seemed dead. There seemed like there was no hope for there to be a king of Israel like Jesus had promised. But here he is, the promised Messiah. And then we move on to the promise being made to the son of Abraham. Is Jesus the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant? Is he the, the fulfillment of... Does he, is he the receiver of the promise made to Abraham, the father of the nation of Israel? Remember, there was no Israel until God called Abram out of Ur. There was none. And he called Abram out and he said, I want you to leave everything that you know and come. And I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to show it to you. And, and I want you to come. And, and, he, and he called him out from that pagan world in which he lived. And God made him this amazing promise. And we find it in Genesis 12, 2 and 3. And he says, Here, here's what he said to Abram. He said, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in your offspring, in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Matthew wants those reading this gospel to understand that indeed this one has come. He wants them and all who read this and the generations and generations to come to see that God is a promise-keeping God. And time may move slowly, but in the fullness of time, God will fulfill his promises. And his promises are always so much greater than anyone would ever imagine. And Matthew is saying, he has come. And Matthew is saying he rules on that eternal throne even now because you know that when this was written, it was after Jesus' death and resurrection and they had heard about that. And he is saying he is on that eternal throne right now. And if you go through the rest of the genealogy of, of Jesus, you're going to see a story is being told even there. This, this first verse is so full of the promises, but there's a story being told even in the rest of the genealogy. Because even though it was rare to include women in the genealogy, in genealogies, mostly here in Jesus' genealogy, there are five women. And some of them have very questionable character, that's true. But there they are. And then there are good kings, faithful kings, wonderful kings listed. And then there are horrible, evil kings listed. The genealogy of Jesus is not a pure line, but it's composed of fallen, sinful people. But the the message here, the story here is there is hope for everyone in this lineage and hope for all. Because if you turn to Jesus, if you come to Jesus, you will be saved by a Savior. You see, in chapter 121 reveals, it says... She will bear a son, and she will call his name Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. And even Mary, even the mother of Jesus, needed to be saved by her son. This beautiful story that is being unfolded, one of the things that it carries with us is that God is always making promises and his intention is always to fulfill them, and they're always growing in their bigness. And so then we move to the importance of the virgin birth. As Matthew tells us, he was supernaturally conceived by the Holy Spirit. 
Therefore, Matthew is unfolding the divinity of Christ. It's, it's interesting to note in the genealogy that all the listings of the different generations are expressed this way. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was the father of Jacob, and Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. And all the way through, you just keep seeing that over and over and over and over until you come to the end, where it is written, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. And, and it's important that, that you see, even in the way that Matthew composed this, is to make sure that you understood that Joseph was not the birth father of Jesus Christ. It does not say that Joseph was the father, but the, he was the husband of Mary. And in the account of the virgin birth, Matthew tells us, an angel appeared in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that who, which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. It's all here. In this genealogy, it's all here. Because Joseph will be the legal father of Jesus, and he is of the line of David, from the tribe of Judah, the tribe from whom the kings come. But he is not the biological father. How can he be? For Matthew's gospel says that the virgin will conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. The promise that God gave through Isaiah, the Lord will give you a sign, and behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and she shall call his name Emmanuel. And it has burst through at this time in space, time, and history. And there he is. Emmanuel, God with us in the midst of us. Okay, so that's kind of the introduction of letting us see who Jesus is. And what Matthew is doing is he's saying this is who has been promised from the very beginning. And if you move to chapter 2, and we're just going to touch on two things very briefly. The first 12 verses show us the initial response to this king who has been gone, born. There are three Three responses. First, we have the Magi, and indeed, they are the wise men from the distant land following a star that would lead them to the Christ child. And they came bearing gifts, and they bowed before him and worshipped him. And remember, these were Gentiles. And this is the promise of Abraham even now being fulfilled because he will be, it says he will be a blessing to all the nations. And so we have the Magi coming in. So, they, they, the Magi come and they worship this, this new king. Next, we have the chief priests and scribes who are consulted about where the king of the Jews was to be born. born. And interestingly, they are able to present an answer, but they show no interest. They, they are able to say he's going to be born in Bethlehem, but you see nothing else. There is nothing that shows... That they go seeking him, there is nothing about anything. He is just show, they just show indifference. And then finally, we have King Herod, the Jewish king, placed on the throne by the Roman leaders. King Herod is out to king, kill the true king, and with fury he will cut down anyone in his way, including the babies who were born at the time the star shone. You see, those are kind of the same. Three responses we have to Jesus today. We have the Magi who come from any distance to worship the Lord. We have those who are indifferent. And we have those who are angry and hate the Lord Jesus. We still see those today. And finally, 
as we sum up these two chapters, the last beautiful truth that we have to glimpse is that here in chapter 2, Matthew gives us a picture of the Exodus story being reenacted. As God calls the Christ child out of Egypt, having gone there to escape, when, when Herod was after killing the children, he wanted to kill the children so, the, so this promised king would not survive. And God called them, and he sent them into Egypt. But when Herod died, an angel appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, and take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. And this was to fulfill the words of the Lord spoken by Isaiah, out of Egypt I have called my son. The deliverance that Jesus brings is to bring us out of our slavery, out of slavery to death and sin and Satan. And when Jesus comes, we are being set free as the people were from Egypt. Now God has come and he has called his son to bring us his people out of the slavery to sin and death and Satan. My friends, the promises that, that come in these first two chapters are to tell us who Jesus is. And as we look at these things, the promises have been building and building and building, and now we have him before us. And the question as we begin to move into the Sermon on the Mount, as we begin to think this, is are we going to be people who want to be people of the king? Are we going to trust him? Are we going to listen to the Sermon on the Mount and, yes, fail in so many ways? But we want to be a counterculture, that we go into the world and that there is something different about us, that we are loving people and telling them about Jesus. That's going to be our hope for this year, is that we will will want to follow our King, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Let me pray for us. Father... um, There's too much in this story to even put our minds around that all these times long, long ago, generation after generation, you made your promise, even all the way back to Genesis. And always you have been fulfilling it and fulfilling it, and the king has come. And Father, we would ask now that we would be like the Magi, that we would bow before him and worship him and follow him. We need much grace, Lord, and we pray you would be with us during this study. In Christ's name, amen.